not a conflict, but a war. Whatever is happening in Ukraine is influencing every single country. We become refugees not from our will. has changed not only my life, but the life of the whole Ukraine. Welcome to True Humanitarian. I'm Lars Peter Nissen. And I'm Yulia Chikoliba. If you are a regular listener to the show, you will notice that this episode is different. Now, Yulia, since it's the first time you're on the show, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm Ukrainian, and I was born in Dnipro, which is southeast of the country. And uh, since 2014, the first invasion of Ukraine, I got into activism. And later on, after being a volunteer in a local hospital with injured soldiers and civilians from the front line, I became a pers- like local personnel of uh, the international NGO working in eastern Ukraine. Since 2018, I've been working internationally, managing components of uh, humanitarian mine action programs in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and Syria, with different uh, UN agencies and uh, international NGOs. It was up until that night in Damascus, where I've been working with the International Committee of Red Cross um, and learned that Russia invaded Ukraine again. I came back to Ukraine, where I am now, um, and have been working here since then. I have to say, Julia, that I'm both very grateful and feel extremely lucky to have stumbled upon you. I felt very uncomfortable about doing this show on my own. I didn't see how it could be done in a credible way without a Ukrainian perspective, to contrast uh, the perspective that I bring in, very much a Geneva-centric international humanitarian action perspective. And so with you, the the fantastic thing is that we have both a Ukrainian perspective and that of an international humanitarian worker. I think that's very unique, and I really look forward to our conversations. Maybe I can ask you, when I first approached you, why did you actually say yes? Because it is my country and my war. I know the system, I know how it works. Um, I've been working in it for a while, and it's very personal effect in me to see how it does not work in my own country and how we repeat the same mistakes from other countries over and over again here. But also I think uh, that we have a lot of conversations in humanitarian and not only humanitarian sphere about Ukraine but without Ukraine. So I'm here to speak sometimes as my humanitarian international worker hats on um, but also a lot as a Ukrainian who is actually living this war. Listening to your story, I'm thinking how difficult it's going to be to at the same time do justice to all of the individual stories that come out of, of this terrible situation, while at the same time painting an overall picture of humanitarian action in Ukraine. So, Julia, we have four episodes where we can explore different aspects of humanitarian action in Ukraine. And you and I have agreed that we will start with the humanitarian principles. Why is that important for you? 
I think it's uh, it's a good introduction to the topic uh, in a way, but also in Ukraine, it's a big debate whether the principles are still relevant, whether the principles are still fit for purpose, and whether they are making the delivery of humanitarian aid effective. Um, I think that's, you know, we think about principles as a, like, cornering foundation stones. But I think this specific response is uh, in the right place to challenge them and to think beyond the principles. But at the same time, before debating them, probably it makes sense to to better understand what they are, right? Yeah, I agree. And I know nobody better to do that than Marc Dubois. Mark has a long career working with MSF, and he's now a senior lecturer at SOAS, University of London. And this is what he had to say when I asked him about the humanitarian principles. Look, if McDonald's goes and distributes food to, to hungry people somewhere in the world, uh, I think that that's a good thing. Um, it's assistance. It's a relief. But is it humanitarian? And I'm not so sure about that, because for me, humanitarian action is uh, you know relief delivered in accordance to these principles. What are those principles? Well, humanity, humanity is, the, is, is thought of as the, the definitional principle of humanitarian action. It's the motivation, it's the purpose of humanitarian action. What's the purpose? Humanity. What is humanity? Humanity is two things at once. Humanity is all human beings. We are all from the same family. And this is kind of a radical idea that I could be sitting in New York and London and the suffering of somebody halfway around the world is my business. It's my business because it's my family. And it's not just my, my family or my, my city or my clan or my tribe or whatever. It's my business because we're all part of the same family. And as human beings, we have certain inalienable rights. You know, we're, we're fundamental human rights. We are people with agency. And that's all wrapped up in humanity. And the other side of humanity is a person with a sense of humanity is a person with compassion. Why do you feel compassion? You feel compassion for the suffering of others. And it's that humanity, that, that dual, that interaction of those people halfway around the world are part of my family and they are suffering. They are in crisis and I feel something and to come to their aid. And that's, that for me is, that's the genesis of humanitarian action. Um, and so, you know, for instance, if the U.S. military in a given location does a vaccination campaign, well, it could be a good thing. But was it motivated by humanity? Maybe yes, at the individual, uh, 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 the individual level. But we know that the, the real purpose of it was force protection or winning hearts and minds, things like that. And uh, that's where you come back to how do you define something that, that you know is generally just doing good, but how do you bring it back to what as an institution, what is motivating you and what, what is driving you? And so humanity has that, the principle of humanity has that very special role of defining the purpose of humanitarian action. The other three principles help you deliver it. What are they? Well, impartiality, it just tumbles, cascades right down out of humanity. It's a non-discriminatory clause, essentially. It says that, well, if we're all part of the same family, when you go out there to deliver aid, you don't just give it to people who look like you, who have the same beliefs. You know, if you're a Christian organization, you don't deliver just to Christians because we're all human beings. And the reverse side of that is the doctrine of proportionality, and it's really important. Humanitarian action, you can never solve everybody's needs, right? You couldn't even do that in, in a Western city. You, you couldn't go to London or Paris or New York and solve all needs. 
So how do you how do you decide what to do? You have to, according to the principle of impartiality, find those most in need, the most urgent cases. If you have 10 sacks of grain, you don't just give it to anybody. You find the people who are have the, the you know the most number of children who are hungry, who are the most uh, in need or threatened by malnutrition, and that's where you deliver it. And that's what impartiality does. And impartiality is it's not just uh, you know a good idea. It, it is an ethical obligation on the organization because if you're not delivering according to need, if you're delivering to some kind of institutional objective, or if you're delivering, for instance, just to again, people who look like you or who are on your side in the conflict, then you're, you're, you're undermining the purpose. You're undermining humanity. And that, that is where the, those two really work well together. Um, the, the, the last two principles, neutrality and independence, they aren't less important, but they're, they're a different kind of principle. They're operational principles. If you want to reach those most in need and you're not if you're, if you're not independent, how are you going to do that? How are you going to reach them, for instance, in a war situation if all of your money comes from the U.S. government and maybe the people that occupy, you know, the, 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 the military groups in that area actually are at war with the U.S. government? And that, that sits both in terms of you, your independence and your neutrality. If you take a side, if you are a partisan, nobody will trust you. If you're, if you're not neutral, people will believe, oh, you're here to help the other side, and then you don't have access. And without access, you can't get to those who have the greatest needs. I always really enjoy listening to Mark. He combines a very deep understanding of humanitarian action with such a creative and fresh way of explaining things that I always learn when I listen to him. What, what did you think, Julia? When it comes to principles, we, we, we want to talk about them separately and individually, right? Humanity is is not a question. It's indisputable. Uh, it's it's something that I believe everyone should and in many cases do follow to assist those who are the most in need. Um, at the same time, three others are aiding the delivery of aid. They're assistant. They're the principal that help us to provide aid to population needs. When it comes to impartiality, for example, for me, it's much more important on a level of delivery of aid. And I don't know any humanitarian agency who declares supporting only a certain type of people with a certain political views, language or so. However, here, I don't think um, I don't think local NGOs, local partisan NGOs, for example, do act in any way differently. I remember I talked to several volunteer groups delivering the aid to the newly liberated areas in Kherson Oblast, and they were the first there. Nobody got there as fast as they did. And while seldom, but there were people who really disliked their like evidently Ukrainian posture, but they were accepting aid they needed. And the groups were delivering aid they, that these people needed, despite disagreement and in, in a core motivation may be different. So I think being impartial in aid delivery has very limited to do with neutrality. So it's much more about humanity, isn't it? I agree with that, Julia. And, and sometimes I even think that the principles are there not for us to fully comply with them, because I think that's very difficult, if not impossible. They're there to show us how did we fall short this time? How did we fail this time? And I think that's particularly true for neutrality, which is an incredibly difficult thing 
to come to terms with when you think of Ukraine. And I would I would say for you being Ukrainian, it must be really difficult to to wrap your head around that, being neutral in a situation where your country is being attacked and is in war. Yeah, I think neutrality is, um, I honestly think neutrality is overrated. But in Ukraine, in a situation of war, it's virtually impossible to be neutral uh, when your country, when your cities, when your people, when your families are suffering from from Russian bombs. And I don't think that you would find uh, many Ukrainians now who would praise neutrality or who would even let you explain how neutrality helps them. And uh, that's a big question if it helps them. But at the same time, Neutrality can be instrumental uh, and can be useful in certain circumstances, right? Not quite sure that it's Ukrainian circumstances, but uh, maybe we want to dig in into the concept deeper. I think one of the things Marx said and explained really well is that when we talk about neutrality and impartiality and and these things, these, these are institutions that are supposed to aspire to that. It's very difficult for individuals, of course, to be neutral in a situation where their country is being attacked by another country. I think I think that's almost inhuman to ask that, right? But at the same time, I think even on an institutional level, when we are talking about different organizations and different profiles, it really depends. Um, it really depends what organization, specific organization, wants to achieve and whether neutrality is relevant. Exactly, there is a great diversity among different actors, and maybe the clearest example of an, a neutral institutional positioning comes from the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC. And I think we should listen to a conversation I had with Fiona Terry, who works with ICRC. She's the head of the Center for Operational Research and Experience here in Geneva. And this is what she said when I asked questions around ICRC's positioning in, in Ukraine, and in particular, the issue of neutrality. So um, according to the Geneva Conventions, you know, we have we have the right to visit prisoners of war, which has been uh, quite an important aspect here and one of the big frustrations for the ICRC. We have, uh, you know, the right to deliver impartial humanitarian assistance. Um, We have the right to work on on both sides to try to help the civilian population and a whole lot of associated things like, you know, visiting prisoners but delivering news of them and how they're faring to their uh, loved ones, exchanging Red Cross messages. Um, we've been doing a lot with uh, reconstructing infrastructure because you've seen all these terrible attacks on critical infrastructure. So we've had massive amounts of um, of action trying to put back together uh, some of this infrastructure that's destroyed. Um, we work in forensics. Um, we work in the uh, dignified um, burial of, of dead bodies. We do things like that. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about neutrality. I think I think everybody agrees that humanity and impartiality are important principles that we should follow. Mm-hmm. But as you say, neutrality is more of an operational, if you want, uh, issue. And there are different positions within the humanitarian community of this. How does it impact you that others are now putting into question the principle of neutrality? Well, for a start, it's not new. (laughs) Neutrality is very difficult. I mean, I myself, 
argued when I was working with MSF that we should, I was involved in a debate where we should take neutrality out of the charter on the basis of MSF's sort of public denunciations that's made and the positions that had taken in the past. But that was before I really saw from the inside the value of neutrality, which I did when I was working with ICRC. It is, I think, incredibly valuable for the ICRC, which doesn't mean that it's necessarily very valuable for others. But I think there have been mistakes in the past where aid agencies have have not acted in a neutral way, and it has been to the detriment of reaching people that they really wanted to assist. And I think Afghanistan is a perfect example. Um, you know, in 2003 or so, it was declared that the humanitarian emergency was over and that aid organisations should all get behind the Karzai government and, you know, bring aid to areas in a large part to legitimise the rule of the Karzai government. And so a lot of agencies did. And then, of course, the Taliban resurgence meant that those agencies were attacked. There were even some people killed. And they were not able then to access the areas of Taliban-held areas of Afghanistan. So I think in today we can see the value of neutrality, that we have dialogue with all sides. It's a terrible situation what's going on in Afghanistan. We would love to be doing so much more. But I think what we can do is, is thanks to having kept this neutral stance throughout the war in Afghanistan. If you look at neutrality and what we were able to do in Rwanda during the genocide, I think it explains it more clearly. Because nobody was on, on the side, or very few, <laughs> of the genocideurs during the genocide. The Interahamwe who manned the roadblocks and were killing Tutsis and it was, you know, it was a genocide. So ICRC and MSF both worked together in Kigali, did not leave, and stayed in a makeshift hospital. And Every morning, the head of delegation of the ICRC, Philip Gaillard, would take an ambulance out and he would go and try and search for people who were still breathing. And then he would have to get them back through these roadblocks to the hospital to treat them. And so how was he going to persuade the Interahamwe to let it through? So what he did was he... He got out of the ambulance and he went and sat with them and I think in some occasions he even drank a beer with them and tried to talk to them and he hid his revulsion. He hid his, his absolute disgust at what they were doing in order, for an operational reason, in order to convince them to allow the ambulances to get through so that he could save the lives of the Tutsi inside. I think it's a really healthy reminder Fiona gives us of why neutrality is so important. And I think that the main question that is on my mind when we talk about neutrality in the context of Ukraine is exactly what you said before, that if you work in northern Syria, there are other parts of the country you are unable to operate in. And so my question here is, if we give up on neutrality for humanitarian access in Ukraine, will you still be able to operate in Russian-occupied territories? Or will you be seen as part of the military effort from Ukraine's side to defeat the Russians and therefore not be an acceptable player in Russian-controlled territory? Good question. I don't know. Um, the short answer is I don't know. But uh, what I see now that despite being declared neutral, you are still not allowed to operate in Russian-occupied areas. So for me, it's a big question about neutrality. It's all about, when we are talking about neutrality, we are talking about operational principle out of the four, right? That helps us to assist, that helps us to deliver. And if it does not, I really like the Fiona's example with the success uh, of neutrality, I mean, as if you can call success in a situation of genocide in Rwanda, 
But what we don't talk, we talk about like many, many, many more failures of neutrality. When we are talking about Ukraine, uh, we know about the volunteer of Red Cross being killed uh, in Kherson in a shelling, in an indiscriminate shelling, how, how neutrality helped here. And it's not the individual case. Um, the big thing about neutrality, again, we are talking about being neutral, being perceived neutral by the people holding the guns. What we are not talking about being perceived neutral, therefore, um, bystanders, unethical, by the population we are assisting. This is also a big part. So, yeah, um, this is my stand on neutrality. And I, the problem with neutrality is that it doesn't work. I'm not sure I agree with you. And it is a really difficult discussion. What I really like both about Fiona and Mark's interventions is that they get off the high horse and don't just say, oh, you know, we must be neutral. They say, we have to be able to access people in order to help them. And the way we get that access is by being perceived as neutral and not getting sucked into a military effort, but being perceived as helping everybody so that there's agreement among all the parties to the conflict that we have a good and valuable role to play. Now, that's obviously the theory behind neutrality, but it doesn't mean that it works every time. People do get killed, even though they shouldn't. The big thing is to contextualize principles a bit, because when we are talking about ICRC, and there are very particular, very specific mandate uh, when it comes to prisoners of war exchange, uh, when it comes to affected the wounds, access to prisons, right? It's, a, it's one thing, even though I would argue that there are tons of Ukrainian not neutral organizations, human rights organizations that facilitated quite a lot of prisoners of war exchanges, despite not being neutral, because all parties of the conflict have interest in this activity. So, but again, I would define ICRC mandate and posture and specific ICRC activities defined by Geneva Conventions, right? and the general broader humanitarian sector. I agree with that. And we can all see that we have nothing else like the ICRC, and they do a fantastic job. And I think we all really love and respect that organization. At the same time, I think we also have to treasure the diversity we have in the humanitarian ecosystem. It's the responsibility of every single humanitarian actor to interpret the principles and make some really difficult choices about what they mean in a given context. And the fact that we interpret them differently enables us to do different things. Because no matter which position you take, there's a downside to it, as we have just heard and discussed. And so I actually think it's important that we don't agree on this, but that we take different positions so that we collectively can reach as many people as possible. Having said that, one of the things that we sometimes overlook as humanitarians, and I think it's because we, we have scarce resources, we never have enough so we always have to make those really difficult prioritizations about who to help and where to put the help to be able to be as impartial as possible. And of course, that's why we talk so much about coordination, because we want to optimize. We want to optimize our operations so we do the best we can. But in that search for coordination and putting things together and making them fit, we run the risk of overlooking the fact that that diversity is really one of our strengths. So it is great that we have an ICRC because they can do stuff that nobody else can do. I totally agree um, because I think ICRC has a very unique mandate. And when we are talking about the principles, we try to apply them 
kind of blankly on 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 everyone on every single humanitarian organizations and if we talk about like local local or community volunteer groups which might not be as um, respectful to humanitarian principles, we immediately say that, oh, they are not humanitarians, uh, they are not part of the system, we don't want to deal with them, we don't want to coordinate with them. The similar thing is the government, actually, who provides, it's not humanitarian assistance, but who, as uh, Fiona rightfully said, and you said, like has a primary responsibility to take care of own citizens, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's a social contract between a government and its citizens. And of course, it is the role of the government to to protect and and ensure the basic needs of its citizens. That's at the core of what a government does. But it's not humanitarian. Humanitarian action is what we do for the people who fall through the cracks. It is what steps in when a government is either unable or unwilling to help part of its population. I sometimes say it like this, it's, it's humanitarian action is not when you send out an ambulance. It's when you run out of ambulances. It's really what you do as a last desperate attempt when all systems break down and the government is unable or unwilling to help its own population. Definitely. And I think it's important to look at the humanitarian aid exactly like that. They are there for some time to assist uh, those who fell through the cracks, as you said, uh, but at the same time, they are not there to replace the government. They are not there to compete with the government. That's important part. And that's, unfortunately, we see quite often what is happening in many countries. And it's emergency aid, as you said, like immediately there run out of ambulances. So, Julia, the million dollar question is for you, if you look at Ukraine today, where are the cracks? Indeed, one million dollar question. <laughs> look, um, and this is, I don't want to go in a lengthy discussion between development assistance and humanitarian assistance, right? Uh, but the big part is from humanitarian assistance side to enable the government help if there is a, if there are established mechanisms how to help people effectively. We don't need to establish a parallel one. We need to use the ones that are already there. And it's not necessarily the government, actually. It's a lot of national NGOs, community group, volunteering groups, so on and so forth. Instead, uh, we do advocate, unfortunately, as a sector for this large-scale humanitarian machine, aren't we? And we know that it can work. Uh, we rarely see the evidence that it works. So it's a great answer, but not to the question I gave you. <laughs> Indeed. Right? So what I asked was, because, because what you're saying is, hey, if there is a functioning system, either from the government or civil society, work through that. Don't set up your own parallel systems. I totally agree with that. I think it's that's a no-brainer. But where are the cracks? I mean, there are a million of cracks, right? Uh, we have a huge displacement of population, which Ukrainian government were not ready to, clearly. Uh, and the, their attempts to assist just don't have enough funding sometimes, right? Uh, we, and let's be very honest about that, sometimes not enough capacity either, not enough qualified staff and so on and so forth. Um, we have a huge, um, we have a huge need in terms of medical assistance. We have a huge need in, in terms of basic, basic, you know, food parcels sometimes depends on the area, right? And at the same time, we do have government, local NGOs, international NGOs, uh, numerous actors delivering this assistance, but not in sufficient 
insufficient scale. So if I'm right, what you're talking about now is what does the situation look like in the part of the country that is under Ukrainian control? And what you're saying is it's such an overwhelming situation, we need more support. And that should be given through existing systems. I'm totally with you there. Now, what about the areas where there's active fighting and what about the areas that are controlled by the Russians? And this is where uh, our failure of neutrality comes to the scene, right? Uh, a lot of organizations trying to access the areas which are occupied by Russians and at the same time, very, very few of them actually manage to. And uh, this is where we see the, at least I see, the failure of, of neutrality to facilitate the access. So organizations can be can claim to be neutral to the extent that it brings them in a so so-called fight with Ukrainian government we all know the scandal with ICRC and Lavrov and handshake but at the same time ICRC is one of the few actors who has access to the area scandal what scandal what what's the scandal isn't it so look there is a big uh, there is a big media um, and social media and the Ukrainian outrage when uh, when the president, I think the previous president of ICRC actually visited uh, Moscow and currently the new president of ICRC also visited Moscow, which is fine when we are talking about speaking to the whole sides of the conflict, but average... Not just fine. This is what they're supposed to do. This is their bloody job. You, we, we just sit here and praised ICRC and their unique nature. This is why they can do this. It is because they engage with all sides of the conflict. Russia is a signatory of the Geneva Conventions. Of course, he has to shake Lavrov's hand. Yeah, but that's, uh, sorry for me, it's a big failure of ICRC to explain that to Ukrainian citizens. And uh, Fiona had a, had a very good point about uh, Rwandan genocide and, and ICRC there speaking to the guys on the checkpoints who, of course, did a huge atrocities and and and. It's very hard to be neutral. At the same time, um, there are differences between talking to the soldiers on the checkpoints to let the ambulance in and the official engagement with the governments. And I don't so don't get me wrong. I worked for ICRC, same as you. I know that they have to do it. But they fail to explain it to Ukrainian citizens. I get the point about explaining it because it is neutrality is not just what you actually do. It's also how you are perceived. So, of course, it is incredibly important that the population's... It's all about perception, actually, that the population perceive that that these, this organization is neutral and doesn't take sides. But I, 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 I don't... It's not wrong for them to go and talk to Russia. They have to do this job. Definitely. My, my, my sincere hope that it would actually help because ICRC had a lot of access problems to non-government control areas. But coming back to the aid itself... Um, as far as I know, there are very, very few organizations who are able to operate in occupied areas, even through the partners. And this is a big problem. And this is not the problem of Ukrainian government stopping them from that, right? It's a problem that neutrality or posture doesn't work, simply doesn't work. Or maybe we're not doing it well enough. Probably, but uh, I would think that it's more of a systematic systematic structural problem. Impartiality would tell us that we have to help everybody according to need. And of course, if there are significant pockets of populations in areas where we can't access, we undermine impartiality, right? This is the whole link between those. And, and so you could say on one side that neutrality doesn't work, 
or you could say that we are not doing it well enough. My question would be, if, if neutrality doesn't work, then what the heck do we do? What do we do for those people who are in the Donbass, in Crimea, and in the areas where there's active fighting? As a humanitarian, what would you do? Look, uh, what would we do? And uh, you, you can talk to Ukrainian population here. They will all say you a lot of thanks for humanitarian assistance, but in the end they will ask for weapons. Because this is where the difference between humanitarian aid and, and other forms of aid coming. It is a treating a symptom. So we do treat those who uh, fell through the cracks. It's a symptom. It's a symptomatic. It's a painkiller. It's nothing more than a painkiller. And when we are talking about the political solution or military solution to the war, which is a root cause of the problem, then we are talking about different types of aid. Exactly. But I totally agree with you. It's a painkiller. It's not a solution. It's a band-aid on a broken leg. It is insufficient. But we do it because otherwise people will die. Otherwise, people will have violated their fundamental rights. And that's why we do it. That's why we operate the way we are. And of course, the deep concern is that if we, in the name of helping the Ukrainian population that are overwhelmed in the territory controlled by the Ukrainian government, if we throw neutrality out the window, we also then neglect the people in the areas where there's fighting and, and that are controlled by Russia because we undermine humanitarian access. This is the whole dilemma. It would be dilemma if neutrality would support and facilitate access in the context of Ukraine. And now it does not. Uh, the big thing to it is also neutrality and perception of neutrality in a in a What is neutrality for Ukrainians? Explain the difference for every single Ukrainian, the difference between indifference, the difference between being bystander and neutrality. And the, so far, we as humanitarian community fail to explain it to ourselves sometimes. Try try to do it to, to the population without fancy degree somewhere in uh, Western Europe, right? So here, Yes, neutrality is an instrument, operational principle, and it works for some organizations sometimes, in some instances, in some context, for some organizations like ICRC, for some specific activities. And it doesn't work for everyone else, for majority. And it's not, and for me, like, honestly, it doesn't work not because we are doing it badly. It doesn't work because it's unnatural uh, to, the, to the human being side, being neutral, right? When we are talking about humanity, neutrality is almost the opposite of it. I can see how it's a big camel to swallow. I, I get that. At the same time, I think you can also see the opposite argument. You can, you can see the ICSC argument and you can see that the fact that we, are, we have very limited ability to operate in those areas where there are significant needs is a real problem. I mean, it is a problem because there are people there and the people need assistance um, despite where they are. So it's a big, big debate with neutrality. What we see now in Ukraine specifically that it does, in largely it does not facilitate the access. Largely it does harm relationship with Ukrainian people, not even government, Ukrainian people on the ground. It does uh, prevent us as humanitarian communities in engaging with local actors who are much more effective and efficient in like the small, fast responses than us. And uh, 
we have to question like neutrality. We have to think about solidarity as alternative, right? We have to think about um, the bigger picture. So, Julia, this has been a great conversation around what humanitarian action is, what it should be in Ukraine, what the humanitarian principles are, and clear. It's it's a very complex discussion. What if you had to summarize what we have been talking about? What what stood out for you in our conversation today? I think. When I'm thinking about the humanitarian principles after our discussion, I think it's a lot about getting the nuances and contexts. Because one thing is ICRC, another thing is everyone else. One thing is Ukraine, another thing is Rwanda, right? And I kind of think that when we talk about humanitarian principles, it is very, very, very important, first of all, to acknowledge the limitations and sometimes be very open to rethink all our humanitarian architecture. Remember in the beginning you told that what Ukraine means for humanitarian world, maybe maybe this, maybe neutrality questioning is this for Ukraine. I think that's clear. I don't I'm not sure whether we agree or disagree on neutrality. And I think it is difficult to to talk about it in a generic sense because as you say, context is king. Neutrality really is about how do how do that how does that strategy enable us to do the most we can? It's clear to me also from what you're saying that there is a serious issue around humanitarian access in Russian controlled territories and in the areas where there is where there is conflict. And we can then discuss whether neutrality is a good strategy to open up those spaces, to amplify that humanitarian space or not. I think that is the discussion, and that has to be a concrete discussion. But we can't just, for me, throw neutrality out the window as as a strategy. I think it has, it is in in the, in, in the core, and I think what, what the case is in Ukraine is, it's just really difficult to make it work. I agree. I, I think I would go further, though. I think we have to constantly question and reassess the principles we are based on because the world is changing, the conflicts are changing. And this is something we have to be very open to. Or maybe what we have to do is constantly interrogate the principles to understand what they mean in this context, but maintain that those principles are at the core of what it means to be a humanitarian and that if we lose them, we lose our identity. Or be open-minded to transform and grow in our identities. Under all circumstances, Julia, I want to say a big thank you for, because it's not an easy thing to sit and have this kind of discussion about your own country. It is invaluable that you do so. It takes courage, and I really admire that. So, so thank you for that. Thank you, Lars. I'm uh, looking forward to talking to you soon, discussing other aspects, but I think we had a good discussion, something to think about for all of us. This episode was produced with support from Care Denmark. Our producer is Dennis Kelsen, research by Caroline Thorsen, and our sound engineer is Agustin Libertorte. If you like the show, let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you really, really like the show, why don't you give us a donation through our website, truemanitarian.org, where we have a PayPal link.